Well, it's good to see you all tonight. It's good to be to, together to gather around the Word of God and study together and have, the, have God, the living God, speak to us. So let's ask Him to bless our time in the Word. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble, and uh, we thank you for you being the living God and for how you speak to us today, which is through the Word of God. And so, uh, Lord, help us to have ears to hear what you want to say to us tonight. May we be edified in our faith and strengthened, uh, grow in grace as we spend time together. So thank you for the body of Christ, and thank you for the privilege uh, to be here tonight. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, uh, we are in Ephesians, and Ephesians has as its theme the church, uh, the universal church, although there's a lot of uh, application for the local church, especially as we get into the practical section of the book, the last three chapters there. But uh, Paul, if you, uh, as I say, the theme is the church, and he begins by laying out the grand scheme of things, the, the God's great plan, grand plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. And of course, in between, uh, we have the glorious truth of, of being saved through faith in Christ. But uh, the truth of the matter is salvation and the church go together. Those two doctrines, the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the church, are wed together. And that's one of the main emphasis that, that Paul is making in the book. The church is a family of believers in Jesus Christ, um, both Jew and Gentile, whatever stripe, whatever background. Uh, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we become part of this forever family called the church. Now, how did the church come to be? Well, the Jews had rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so then God began a new thing, a brand new thing on the day of Pentecost that we call the church. As I say, both Jew and Gentile uh, unified together in one body, one family. And so we have, uh, as I say, uh, chapter one, the grand scheme of salvation and a prayer for enlightenment. Chapter two, we're made one by the, the blood of Jesus Christ. And then by responding uh, in faith, by grace are we saved through faith, that not, not of our works, but uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we saw this in chapter 2. And then uh, chapter 3, emphasis on this is a brand new thing. It was a mystery revealed, as we saw in our study last week in chapter 3, 1 through 7. And tonight, uh, making the mystery known. God wants the word to get out here. It's a secret, but now the secret needs to be told, Right? And, and who's going to tell this secret? Well, it's up to me to do it. That's why we have internet, right? <laughs> well, I'm one player. We're all to be involved in doing this. This is the, the great commission is given to all of God's people. We're all in this together. So uh, note uh, this introductory slide as we get started here tonight. Uh, I, yeah, is this right? Yeah, you're right. It is right. Yeah, it, it's not your problem. <laughs> yeah. In 3.1, we saw Paul began to pray for God's people. He, start, he starts off praying, but then encountered a diversion at the mention of the word Gentiles. That kind of triggered him. Uh, this triggered an enhancement of Paul's unique calling and commission as he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was graced to receive special revelation in regard to, the church, to church truth. But he also had a special stewardship responsibility to get the message out, especially in relation to Gentiles. So now that brings us to where we are in 3, 8 through 13. We now see the emphasis that God wants this message gotten out because he is glorified in this reality. Therefore, he wants it made known. 
Paul played a major role in the foundational stage of the church in terms both of receiving this church revelation and propagating it. But as I say, uh, it's broader than Paul. It also includes us. Okay, well, that's our introduction. Let's get into it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, and who wants to read verse 8 for us? We'll kind of work our way through one verse at a time here tonight. Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 8. Who wants to read that? <clears throat> yes, John? You can hear me all the way back. Oh, yes, I can. I can. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Paul is amazed that God would use him in this capacity to get the word out to the Gentiles. And there's a tremendous emphasis here that he is not a self-made man. Uh, he, he is a, a God-made man. And uh, he doesn't see himself as better than anybody else saying, you know, I the, great, I, I the great Saul became the great Paul. No, that's not his attitude at all. He recognized that he was what he was by grace. In fact, notice how he says in great humility to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Wow. <clears throat> you know, Paul was the first one that really struggled with a lack of self-esteem. Can you see that here? <laughs> uh, really, the Bible doesn't emphasize secular self-esteem as known out here in the world. But it does emphasize Christ's esteem. And it does emphasize we have value and, and purpose and meaning in Christ. Uh, really, I think the emphasis of Scripture is, is not a put-down in any way, shape, or form. We find our identity in Christ and uh, our worth uh, in Him. And uh, so when he says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, I think he's thinking about this great theme of grace that runs throughout the entire book. As he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. Uh, we all have value, and uh, we all have uh, uh, great value before God, but it's not a self-value. It's because we are made in the image of God. The glory uh, goes to God. The credit goes to God. We're all fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, God doesn't make junk. Uh, we all have great value, but it's not attached to, boy, I got some you know, credit here. No, it goes back to God. Notice uh, to me who am less than the least of all the saints. Um, i got another slide here. Paul actually seemed to mature in this humble perspective as he goes along. Uh, you know, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of all the apostles. By the way, I didn't put it up there, but why does he say that he is the least of all the apostles? Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, he goes on to say, what's that? Well, he does say that in there, and in that close context, that's true. But he goes on to say how he persecuted the church. Yeah. And, you know, I think Paul in some ways never quite got over it. It was horrible what he did, you know. But anyway, in that same context, as he goes on there, he says that. But I'm the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, in our text tonight, uh, to me who am less than the least of all the saints. But then it gets even lower, 1 Corinthians 1, 15, he talks about... Uh, uh, of, of sinners of whom I am the chief. Christ came to save sinners of who I am the chief or, or the foremost. So, wow, the least of the apostles, the least of all the saints, and uh, the worst of the sinners. <laughs> wow, he's on a roll there, isn't he? But, uh, you know, I think God uh, blesses that humble spirit. If Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. for thus says the high and lofty one. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place 
with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And so uh, God is the high and lofty one, the high and holy one. But uh, he has fellowship with the humble and he uses the humble for his glory. You know, it's interesting how um, I think you can be too high for God to use you, but you, you can't be too low, properly speaking. I think you can have a false sense of, of uh, humility. That's true. But, um, you know, I think back about Gideon. Remember Gideon back in the book of Judges? He was going to war and he had 32,000 men. And God said, uh, you have too, too many men. Uh, and, and how many did God reduce him down to and said, I'm going to use this, this, this few from 32,000 down to 300. Yeah, 300 men. And with that, God brought the victory because he said, otherwise, uh, you're going to take credit for it yourself. Yeah, you're going to give yourself the glory. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 that not many, not many uh, mighty are, are called. Uh, God has chosen what? The foolish, the weak, the base, the despised, the nothings, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So God uses the humble. You know, I think about Moses. Uh, Moses just assumed his brother would understand that he's supposed to be the great deliverer initially, right? He's killing this Egyptian and he's thinking, boy, they are going to rally behind me. They didn't. And so what did God do? Well, God took Moses on the backside of the desert for 40 years. And how does Moses emerge from that? I'm now recognized. Finally, God's recognized me as the great, the great hope of, of the Hebrew children. No, uh, it says in Numbers 12, 3, that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Boy, that, that was humbling. I mean, he went from the palace, I mean, right there with Pharaoh, raised in that context, to the backside of the desert for 40 years, had a humbling, a humbling effect on him. And now he was usable. Uh, God used him in a, in a great way. And we see that with Paul here too. You know, I think Paul, with his brilliant mind, uh, he was going places. I mean, amongst his own people, among the religious leaders of the day. I mean, he was a somebody in, in Israel. But now being humbled, uh, we see his attitude. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. <clears throat> grace is always given. Uh, grace, the idea of grace is a gift. It's unmerited favor. And uh, really the grace he's talking about here is, is the calling of God upon his life and the empowering of him to be the revealer of this mystery. Uh, he had a key role in, in getting out the mystery of the church and what God was doing in terms of uh, uh, bringing both Jew and Gentile together in one body. Notice he touched on this in verse 7 that we left off last week. Uh, he says, of the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So he's kind of building on what he's already stated there in verse 7. It was a grace calling. And what was it? Uh, well, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Uh, this was his great privilege. It was a grace privilege to, to preach to the Gentiles. And, and Paul saw this as a, as a tremendous honor, a tremendous grace privilege to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, and I love this. It's a, it's a beautiful description of, of the gospel and what we have in the gospel, the unsearchable riches of, of Christ. The idea of unsearchable, uh, that word is used in just one other place, and that's in Romans eleven thirty three. Um, that his ways are past finding out. It's the idea of, of it's unsearchable or, or it cannot be traced out. Um, it's, it's, it's beyond us. We would never know it apart from God's revelation. 
what God has revealed. It must be revealed to us. And the riches refer to the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. You know, we have different uh, places where it's, you know, gives us just a little glimpse of it. Psalm 1611, uh, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Um, <clears throat> we really can't imagine what that's like to be in the intimate presence of God. We'll get there someday, right? But we're not there yet. But then I also think about Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Well, I, I think that's probably pretty unsearchable. To, to, what does that mean? We'll inherit all things. Little you. Little me. We're going to inherit all things? All of us are going to inherit all things? Yeah. Uh, all of us who are overcomers, we're all going to have a part in inheriting all things. I don't know what that means as far as searching out all things. I, maybe it's going to take us forever to even discover all things, right? I mean, uh, just imagine the new Jerusalem and all the glories of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, and we just can't fathom it. I think that's what he's talking about here. Uh, we're declaring it, the unsearchable riches of Christ. There it is, but it's unfathomable. We can't really totally wrap our mind around it. Uh, what a glorious reality. Uh, let's see here. Uh, when someone dies, they often say they left it all behind. Well, that is certainly true of unbelievers and of all people concerning material things. But for believers, they went to it all. <laughs> Maybe look at this a little different. Uh, we're going to inherit all things. They didn't leave it all behind. They went to it all. They have entered more fully into the good of it all. They have gone to the glory land where they get a closer look at what it means to inherit all things. They have gone to their eternal reward and to their treasure, which uh, they laid up in heaven. So, uh, you know, for believers, maybe we need to change from uh, thinking about this. to This is what it's really all about. We are going to inherit all things. We're not leaving anything behind, right? Not, not really, other than the things of this life. Uh, that you can't hold here. But as far as uh, what is the riches of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, we're going to it all. Uh, we're in, into the, the fullness of it in a deeper sense than we ever realized here uh, while we're in this life here. All right. Um, okay. Uh, let me just say this before we go to the next verse. When uh, we think about the gospel that Paul is preaching, uh, if you study through what he's talking about, and we know at core, uh, well, let me say it this way. There's a two-pronged emphasis with Paul in his gospel. And uh, notice he's talking about this. Uh, he, he says uh, uh, how uh, back in verse 6, how the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, uh, uh, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So the, so the message that Paul is talking about, we know the gospel, uh, we know the emphasis of what Christ did for us. He died for us, he was buried, he rose again. The gospel is all about what Jesus Christ did for us. Uh, so that we might what? Believe. And what happens when we believe? And have, have eternal life, right? Uh, Christ died for us so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life, right? That's my point. But... Paul's going a little further with this. And it's a really big deal in the mind of God. He died for us so that we might personally have a relationship with God. We might be forgiven and have a personal But he also died for us so that we might have a relationship with one another forever. 
That's the other prong of the gospel that Paul is emphasizing. The good news is, yes, you now have a right relationship with God because of Jesus, but you also have an eternal relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, which is an amazing reality. You're going to have to put up with me forever. Just think about this. It's a glorious thought, isn't it? <laughs> I know. It does. Yes. You gonna stay in your corner? Just, just stay, stay in that special room that, that Jesus has prepared for you. <laughs> Lock the door. Yeah, we joke around, but no, it's going to be great. You know, uh, we can't imagine what it's going to be like. None of us will have a sin nature anymore. We'll all be in glorified form. Nobody will ever sin. Uh, we, we really can't imagine what that that glory is going to be like. As I come back, I love this phrase, unsearchable riches. Uh, In this life, it's unsearchable. I think we're going to have eternity to search it out. But what a glorious, uh, what a glorious thing. But but I want you to see this uh, two-pronged emphasis. The gospel is what Christ did on the cross. That's the gospel and, and his burial and his resurrection. But he did it so we might have relationship personally with God, but we might also have an eternal personal relationship with one another. That's the the rest of the gospel uh, emphasis that Paul is bringing out here as far as the good news. Uh, So the key here for Paul, uh, personal salvation was not an end in itself, but rather was connected to the bigger picture of the family of God. That is the church. Remember, we're talking about the church. And uh, who gave us... New Testament truth about the church. Mostly. Well, it was Paul. Paul, right? I mean, yeah, it's touched on other places too. But Paul's the one who really develops the doctrine of the church. It is theologically true that there is no salvation outside the church. I'm not talking denominationally or relative sacraments, but rather organically in terms of relationship with Christ and his body. In other words, union with Christ equals union with his spiritual body called the church. Uh, So when we think in terms of the gospel, we should not just think in terms of personal salvation in isolation to the other members of the family. The gospel involves a bigger picture related to the family of God. That is the major emphasis in the book of Ephesians. Yeah. On, on the second point, <clears throat> yeah. you are talking about for the present dispensation, correct? Uh, because in the Old Testament there was salvation, but there was no church. So you're, you're speaking for the present. I'm talking about the church age, right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And Yeah, that's right. And even after the church age, I mean, there'll be many people saved in the tribulation period in, in the kingdom. Uh, you know, so yeah, I'm talking about the church where we live right now. If, if you get saved, you become a part of this forever family called the church. And if you're not a part of that forever family, you're not saved. Yeah. So, but that's church age. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Whole host of old Testament saints, tribulation saints, kingdom saints, different dispensations. But yeah, we're talking about church age here. Yeah. Good clarification. All right, any other thoughts here before we move on to verse 9? And I'm not going to take as long on all of these verses, so we are going to get through this. All right, let's have somebody read verse 9 for us. Who wants to read that? Yes, Marilyn?
Did you have through Jesus Christ in yours? No? We're going to have to check your Bible out. I'm just teasing. <laughs> just kidding. You got what? Is that New American Standard? Yeah, that's the older, the older manuscripts. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, and to make all see. This is, this is the intent. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Uh, not only to see the truth of salvation uh, in terms of personal salvation. Yeah. But... Uh, uh, Paul was uh, given this privilege to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to make people see the reality of the fellowship of the church family. Uh, and as I say, no one spells out church truth more clearly and at greater length than the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is the guy who, who really lays out the church at great length. It's touched on other places too, for sure. But uh, notice his calling to make all see. Help everybody see this. What is the fellowship of the mystery uh, that believers share in this family? Uh, the mystery is the reality of the church. Both Jew and Gentile are now equals in Christ. Uh, so he's really, this, by the way, this word fellowship is uh, the word that is uh, other places translated as dispensation. The idea of, of God's administration or management or stewardship, uh, God's mystery administration uh, that we call the church age is really what he's talking about. Uh, to make all see what is the, what is the fellowship, what is God's uh, administration, God's church family uh, during this age. Uh, so he wants, us to, uh, he wants to help us see the reality of the church age. That's really what he's talking about here. To make all see what is the, the fellowship of the, of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. It was a mystery program. Again, this is something brand new. The church age is, is, is unique to the church age. It was uh, hidden previously, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. Uh, I like this from John Phillips. <clears throat> he says, Paul revealed the secret God had kept to himself. He had kept it hidden when he visited fallen man in Eden, when he talked with his friend Abraham, when he gave the law to Moses. He told David, a man after his own heart, many things, but he did not tell him this secret. He spoke to Isaiah and Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, Daniel, but, he, but still he kept his secret. He did not tell uh, the 12 minor prophets, and then he kept this burning secret for four more silent centuries. Finally, God sent his son who was involved in the secret. Jesus dropped hints of it here and there. By the way... Uh, Jesus mentioned the church twice, right? Uh, he mentioned the universal church and he mentioned the local church. Where did he mention the universal church? Well, Matthew 16, I will build my church. Where did he mention the local church? In chapter 18, in the context of church discipline. Church discipline. Hey, you get an A for the day. That's right. So uh, yeah, Jesus dropped hints of it here and there. Like I say, he mentioned it twice there inferred other places too but he did not give it away the day of pentecost came and the church was born peter preached souls were saved and the secret was out but still men did not grasp it so god saved saul shared the secret with him and said you tell the world <laughs> isn't that a great summary i think that's what paul is saying here uh, to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which was from the beginning uh, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. It was there. This is not a new idea. God didn't say, well, okay, the, the Jews are rejecting my son, the Messiah, so I got to come up with plan B. 
The church is not plan B. It was hidden in God all along. From the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. It's not a PS program. It's not an afterthought program. It was, it was hidden in, in God uh, from the beginning of the ages. God knew what he was going to do all along. Uh, by the way, there are no surprises with God. He knew we were going to have a gas problem here. <laughs> no surprises. Who created all things uh, through Jesus Christ? And so uh, God is the creator of all things, including this new thing called the church. All right. Any other thoughts there before we go on to verse 10? Okay. Very good. Verse 10. Who wants to read that? It's one continuous thought here. Yes, Dwinette. Okay, so there's a flow of thought here. Uh, Paul had a special calling to preach to the Gentiles, to help everybody see uh, the fellowship of this mystery, this new thing that God is doing called the church. But then carrying the thought through, verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Guess what? We're being watched. We're being watched. You did notice the cameras coming in, right? I'm just kidding. We're being watched. Uh, who's watching us? Well, angels. Angels. Yeah, principalities and powers. Um, there's a bigger picture than just what people are seeing in the world. And, and God's doing some things uh, in relationship to his program called the church uh, t- for a specific intent, for a specific purpose that's bigger than us. Uh, to the intent that, that now the manifold wisdom of God, uh, this word manifold is, is a really rich word, by the way. Uh, it's the idea of multifaceted or, or many splendored. Uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of uh, the Old Testament, it's the word that's used of, of Joseph had a, a, a coat of many colors. It's that idea of, it's that word translated, many colors. Uh, manifold, multifaceted. It, it's really a combination of beauty and diversity. Uh, this is a great descriptive word when it comes to the wisdom of God re- related to what he's doing in building his church. Uh, the manifold wisdom of God. Uh, the wisdom of God in bringing about this, this union, this mystery union. It was before a secret, but now is, is on display uh, for all to see, including the angels. It's a thing of beauty is the idea. And it's, it's rooted in God's wisdom. Only God could bring about this. The, the church is an amazing thing of beauty. And he says that it might be made known by the church. Guess what? Uh, the church serves this function, this purpose, to put the wisdom of God on display. What wisdom? Well, this, this beautiful wisdom seen in the mystery of the church. Uh, the mystery union that before was a secret. I mean, how in the world... Are the Jews and the Gentiles ever going to come together as as spiritual equals? Well, it's happening in Jesus Christ. 
It's God's work and it's God's wisdom that's bringing that about. And uh, we put it on display. We make, we make it known uh, on earth and in heaven. Uh, the wisdom of God in uniting both Jew and Gentile in one body is really a, a glorious truth to the glory of God. Uh, it might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Uh, this is the language of angels elsewhere. Uh, good angels, chapter 1, verse 21. Bad angels, chapter 6, verse 12. Perhaps <laughs> refers to both. I think uh, both uh, holy angels and fallen angels are taking this all in, seeing what in the world is this that God is doing? Called the church. It's an amazing thing. Puts God's wisdom on display. And then uh, in heavenly places, it says there, and of course that's, you know, the angels uh, traverse back and forth through the heavenly places. <clears throat> the church is a vehicle by which this wisdom is made known. It is fascinating that God didn't directly communicate this to the angels, but uh, rather lets the church serve as an object lesson that portrays this wisdom to them. You see how that's stated there? Uh, might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers. Uh, this is a fascinating thing regarding the relationship of the church and angels. We can't normally see angels. And if you do, you should write a book about it because there's good money in this kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, just kidding. I, uh, we can't normally see angels, but we know they are around us, observing us, ministering on our behalf. We are told that angels are interested in this great salvation plan and how that relates to us as people. First Peter 1.12 <clears throat> is talking about uh, you know, the Old Testament prophets, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel uh, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Isn't that interesting? They're fascinated with this great plan of salvation that involves us. Yeah. Yeah. Now, right. right. And the good angels are probably thinking, now what? <laughs> yeah. So year after year goes by, and God is doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. God kept it quiet. Yeah. yeah. And then come to the church and they say, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't that the truth? Amen. And every step of the way, that probably is being played out, you know, as far as God continues to build it. Looks like, oh man, the, the tremendous persecution that came in the early days of the church. Oh man, the church is in jeopardy. Certain places in communist China. What's going to happen here? And yet it continues. It, and, and it's amazing, you know, to the principalities and powers saying, wow, look what God is doing in spite of everything here that the devil is throwing here. Yeah, that's a good thought, Vince. All right. Anyone else? Yes, Marge. Very question. Yes. <laughs> I'm at Southview Bible Church in Council Bluffs, Iowa. <laughs> We're in Ephesians chapter 3. Thank you. And I'm, we are now on verse, uh, we just finished verse 10 and we're going to verse 11. I'm sorry, Margie, I should have made reference uh, as we went along here. But yeah, so it, there are no dumb questions here. No. All right. Uh, let's have somebody read uh, verse 11, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 11. Who wants to uh, read that for us? Yes, Vince. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, very good. Again, it's uh, a run-on sentence here, but uh, according to the eternal purpose. Again, not a new thing. 
what God is doing as far as the church. Uh, eternal purpose. How long does that go back? To How far? Eternal purpose. I mean, this is like his forever purpose. Again, not an afterthought, not a PS, not, not a plan B. Um, God had this in view all along. Uh, let's see here. Got another slide. In some ways, the church is the climax of what God is doing in the world. <clears throat> I say in some ways because I think, you know, you could uh, look at this different ways. But in various ways, it showcases his grace beyond any other program. What God has done in reference to the church is unparalleled in terms of union with each other and union with him. I mean, you know, uh, we are said to be the bride of Christ. Is there any closer union in life than, than the, the one flesh reunion between a man and, and, and wife? Uh, I mean, this is the, the most close, intimate relationship that, that there is as designed by God. And we are said to be the bride of Christ. We are uh, in an unparalleled union with, uh, with him and with each other. There is an unparalleled intimacy horizontally and vertically with the catalyst being the Holy Spirit. All through the ages, God has been building towards something spectacular, which is this unparalleled demonstration of his many-splendored wisdom of grace as revealed in the union of the church. And just think of it, as a believer, you are part of it. I mean, this climactic thing called the church, you have the privilege to be the eternal bride of Christ, to be a part of the eternal bride of Christ in intimate union with him, in intimate union with, with one another as, as fellow members of the bride of Christ. It's, it's an amazing thing. But it's according to God's eternal purpose. And how did he accomplish it? How did he bring it about? Well, he, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It came to be uh, realized through the work of Jesus Christ, through the work of Christ on the cross, which has made it all possible, uh, as we saw back in chapter 2. And uh, so he accomplished this in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course, Christ, uh, the Hebrew word uh, corresponding to the Greek word uh, Christos, is Messiah, referring to the prophesied promised one in the Old Testament, uh, the promised deliverer who would come. Uh, that is the Christ. Uh, Jesus means God's Savior. Lord means God master, uh, and he accomplishes through the one that we know as Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right. Um, any other thoughts? Okay. Let's have somebody read uh, verse uh, 12. Who wants to read verse 12? Yeah, do Okay, it's interesting that he, he kind of brings us in. Remember where Paul started in chapter 3, verse 1? He had his mind on prayer. I think he's coming back to that idea here. And he's going to end the chapter on a strong note there. For he, he definitely has prayer in the back of his mind here. So when he's talking about in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, uh, let's talk about this. You know, those three words, boldness, access, and confidence, he's making a, a strong point here in relationship to prayer. Uh, boldness is literally freedom of speech. Uh, you know, when you have freedom of speech, you, you feel comfortable. Uh, you share openly with somebody, right? Freedom of speech. What's the opposite of, uh, of freedom of speech or, or boldness with somebody? You ever say this? You know, it's like we're walking on eggshells. Yeah. You're just kind of a, afraid that you're going to misstep and there's just not an open confidence. to. And then you have people that, oh, I'm just real open with them. Uh, and so that's the idea here. 
uh, freedom of speech. Uh, we can just share openly our heart with God. Uh, we have boldness in whom we have boldness and access. Not only do we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of approach. Uh, we don't have to come through some rituals. Uh, we don't have to uh, uh, go through some other mediators. There's one mediator. That's uh, Christ Jesus. Uh, and, and we come directly uh, in whom we have boldness, freedom of, spree, uh, uh, freedom of speech, and access, freedom of approach uh, directly. Uh, we can come directly at any time, day or night, and from anywhere. Isn't that wonderful? You say, well, as soon as I get up to Jerusalem, I'm going to go into the temple and have a session with God. Uh, not, not anymore. Uh, we can come directly at any time from anywhere. Our God is approachable because of our relationship with Christ. If we were to come on our own merits, uh, we would have no right of approach. But in Jesus' name, uh, free access is granted. We come on his merits, in his name, and we come freely. Uh, we don't have to wonder if God will be there for us today. It's not like the doctor where you have to make an appointment, right? right. Uh, you can get in any time. Uh, you have uh, boldness. Uh, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. Uh, confidence is the idea of assurance of acceptance. Uh, by the way, not, not self-confidence, but, but Christ's confidence. Uh, that's where our confidence uh, is found, through faith in him. In context is the propagation of the gospel. Prayer and propagation of the gospel go together. God works through prayer, and as believers, we have this great privilege for Paul making known the gospel and prayer went together as a package. Also note that in context, Paul is in the midst of an interrupted prayer thought and is moving to the subject of prayer. So I think prayer in relation to making the gospel known is on his mind. I think that's the, the context here that's, that's being emphasized. And then to close out verse 12, <clears throat> through faith in him, who has boldness, access, and confidence? Well, it's those who have faith. Uh, in other words, believers, people of faith. Uh, the basis for all of this is, is faith. Uh, we are, because of our faith, have this uh, privileged uh, boldness, access, and confidence. And we have the privilege and the responsibility to share the gospel. And, and we have privileged access in prayer. And God works through prayer. All right. Any other thoughts before we finish out here? Okay, let's finish out verse 13. Who wants to read verse 13? Yeah, Kate. Um, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Okay, that's interesting. He kind of inserts this in here. You know, Ephesians is a very impersonal letter. Paul doesn't say much personally, but he kind of interjects a little nugget of personal, uh, a personal issue here. And so he says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you which is your glory. In other words, the idea of losing heart is to uh, be discouraged. I don't want you to be discouraged. Uh, why might they be uh, kind of discouraged about what's going on with Paul? Well, uh, Ephesians is one of the, what kind of uh, epistles? What do we call Ephesians? Uh, it's a, a prison epistle. And we think Paul had probably been in prison for about five years. Now, why was he in prison? To who? Yeah. He was doing fine as he makes his, uh, you know, statement, his mission to the, to the Jews until he got to the word Gentiles. And when he got there, that ended him in, up in prison to where he's been in process ever since. 
because of his really his ministry to the Gentiles. So they might be thinking, oh my, this is really too bad, Paul, what you're having to go through. And, and because of us Gentiles. And Paul's saying, don't feel that way. Don't lose heart. Don't, don't be discouraged because I'm having to suffer because of my special calling to you Gentiles. In effect, I think what uh, Paul is saying is, this is God's plan for me. And it relates to you Gentiles. That's what he has reiterated. I had the great privilege to preach uh, this mystery to you Gentiles. And in effect, he's kind of saying, you guys are worth it. It's all worth it. Uh, don't feel bad about it. Uh, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, for you Gentiles. He says, which is your glory? Uh, not that they're saying, well, well, we're really glad Paul's having to suffer because of us. That, that's not where he's coming from. But I think what he is saying here is how God is using him. Uh, to accomplish this great salvation in relationship to the Gentiles and in relationship to this great mystery which brings them all together, Jew and Gentile, together in one body. Paul began in 3.1 by saying uh, he was a prisoner for the Gentiles. In 3.8, he speaks of being graced to preach to the Gentiles, as we have seen. And in 3.13, he says his tribulations are for them. In other words, Paul is saying that all that has happened to him has been for the furtherance of the gospel among the Gentiles, and that is a wonderful thing for their sake. In this sense, it is their glory. In other words, uh, they could celebrate this. Uh, they could say, praise the Lord. This is a glorious thing that has happened in relationship to Paul uh, for us and uh, for, for our sake. Well, the secret's out. The secret's out, Right? Uh, God's doing a brand new thing in the world. He's been doing it for 2,000 years, but the secret's out. Uh, the, the wisdom of God is being put on display in building a forever family called the church. And it's amazing who he's putting together in this family. Uh, you would never come up with this motley crew and put them all together and say, well, this is going to work. You, you would say, this is not going to work. Uh, you know, if Dwight's going to be on the team, we've got a problem for sure. <laughs> But uh, it is going to work because of God and uh, his great wisdom in building this forever church family. A little girl was taken to church and saw a stained glass window uh, with the early church saints pictured in the window. Sometime later, she was asked what a saint is. Now, we're not going to get too theological here because she's not real theological here, but you'll get the drift. Remembering that window, she said, a saint is one who lets the light shine through. Well, in a very limited sense, that is what a saint should be doing, right? That's right. <laughs> Let's just track with the illustration for a moment here. Uh, is the New Testament light of the gospel shining through us in terms of body life? Uh, we are saints. Uh, you know, a, a saint is one who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I don't care how many church councils vote on you. That, that does not make you a saint. Uh, Christ makes you a saint when you believe. Saint simply means set apart one. We, we are set apart. We belong to Christ. And, uh, but now, uh, as saints, the, the light of the gospel should be shining through us in relationship to body life, uh, is the unity of Christ on display, thus making known the wisdom of God to a watching world and angels to know Christ and to make him known should be our motto, but realize that this making Christ known has a lot to do with body life in the new Testament. I, think, I sometimes think we think, well, boy, sharing the gospel is just going telling people what Jesus is. And that's true. It is telling people what Jesus has done. But to what end? 
Yes, so we might be forgiven, but also that we might be a forever family who belong to Jesus Christ. This is the wisdom of God put on display. This is the intent of God to bring glory to himself by putting this on display. I want to be used in that that way. How about you? Let's put the glory of God on display, the wisdom of God on display, how we interact as as the body of Christ. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? No? Okay. Let's stand up and take just a moment break. I know you're tired after me teaching for 45 minutes. So let's stand up for just a moment and then we'll share some uh, prayer requests.